0: Today, we have a very special guest joining us, Marty Weems. Marty serves the American Rare Earths group of companies as their president of North America. With projects in Nevada, Wyoming, and Arizona, Marty leads the company's development of critical materials for the national security and renewable energy industries, also resulting in the onshoring of this emerging industrial supply chain. His goal is bold, Rare Earths and scandium for an environmentally responsible supply chain for electric vehicles, wind turbines, and solid oxide fuel cells. Marty is a global executive whose leadership has spanned entrepreneurial businesses and large corporations in the technology, pharmaceutical, and startup spaces prior to coming over to mining. Thank you for joining us here on The Rocks. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review in your favorite podcast app. Now let's jump in. Well, welcome, Marty, to On the Rocks. We are really excited to have you on today. Uh, thanks so much for for taking the time to talk to me and 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 give our listeners a little overview of what's going on in the rare earths world.
1: Yeah, thank you, Emily. I'm I'm excited to be here and and chat about this with especially with someone who who knows a little bit about what's going on. So always a pleasure.
0: Yeah, and and the most important question of the day is uh, what are you drinking while we're filming. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So I've got uh, copper city bourbon by Arizona distilling company. Nice. Um, you know, it's uh, in, uh, I'm in Arizona, you know, just a fantastic mining state, but one of the many things I love about Arizona is a saying here about water. Uh, we say uh, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting over. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> could be yeah. could really you know be applied to the entire mining industry really probably. yeah
1: absolutely and and uh, you know Arizona is known as the copper state it's home of Freeport brand. you know it was just as an absolute monster of a copper producer so Copper City little bourbon uh, I'm from back east so you know I like my whiskey and bourbon I grew up in the the hills of Southern Appalachia so it's there been
0: we, real we've bourbon industry right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So we're not afraid to make cook our own whiskey back in those, (laughs) those kind of places.
0: Exactly. Well, I'm, uh, I'm drinking Reservoir again. This is not its first time on the podcast, um, but I just, I love the name. Um, It's a Virginia, uh, Virginia whiskey, and it's, it's great. It's just a small, um, I I don't even know what this means, but they say um, it's in spends two years in our tailor made alligator char barrels. So as a Florida resident, I don't know if that means they're like.
1: Oh, so I, I think I know what that means. So they char it to the point. So you, for being from Florida, you know what alligator skin yeah. looks like, right? Yeah. So you can char a barrel that just blackens the barrel a little bit. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you char it to the point that the wood actually takes mm-hmm. a alligator texture, exactly. changes the texturing, like it's now, now it's really charred. Mm-hmm. You've, you've really put the fire to that barrel I think that's what they call an alligator char on the cask.
0: Well, I will definitely have to check that out. I wonder what that does, what yeah. that means exactly to the bourbon.
1: Probably a little smokier, you know, and and you're getting a little more charcoal in the in the mix, so it probably gets some gets a few nasty things out, <laughs> but gives a little more smoky flair yeah. at, the, at the same time.
0: Very cool. Well, thank you. I, well, I I'm
1: guessing. That. I'm I'm guessing some yeah, chemistry that. here, but no. Yeah. You say that,
0: yeah. No, I was I was like trying to think through as a you know, I'm like, wow, the poor alligators, you know, gave their life. To <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no gators in, the, in uh, that in part Florida, of Virginia anyway. Yeah. But uh, Virginia has great water, you know, as much of Appalachia does. And great water is the basis of great whiskey. Um, sure. So I, I I bet it's a good one. Anyway. No, and I so, noticed
0: that a lot, especially even with the, uh, with the Japanese whiskeys, which mm-hmm. I, I really like. I mean, the, yeah. the, you know, they talk about the, the mineralization around the water and how much that impacts it. And they really do taste very different. I'm getting partly yeah. because of the water, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of setting things on fire, as my real yeah. smooth lead in here to our topic yeah. today. So, I mean, the world is just super focused on rare earths right now and, um, and you're knee deep in the space. So I wonder if you could just give the listeners who might be new to the podcast or new to the mining industry, like, just a 101, what is a rare earth? And first of all, let me clarify, it does not include yeah. lithium, right?
1: <laughs> it does not include lithium? Yeah, that's right. It yeah. does not include lithium. When you get to electric vehicles, they like to party together. They need each other, yeah. um, but not in the same component mm-hmm. of the car. They're part of the drivetrain. Mm-hmm. Li- you know, Lithium's the battery storing electricity, along with nickel and cobalt and all the battery-related metals. That's a storage unit rare earths are about taking that electricity and turning it into motion. Mm. So that's one direction of electricity and where rare earths come into play. And then it's also the reverse, taking motion and turning it into electricity. Mm. So think of a, wor- a wind turbine, especially an offshore wind turbine that's a direct drive. You need these massive rare earth permanent magnets, high performance magnets, really long life that take the motion of that wind turbine, cranking against the turbine, the magnets in there, and you you make electricity with that motion,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the reverse of that, of course, is is in an electric vehicle. Battery stores electricity as it releases it into the drivetrain. It's turning an electric traction motor. So that electric traction motor has substantial rare earth permanent magnets in it. Uh, that uh, include neodymium, praseodymium, dysprosium, terbium to make those magnets. Uh, well, yeah, the holiums. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so when when we talk about rare earths, there are fifteen lanthanides plus yttrium plus scandium in the family of rare earths. But you know, the the super critical is about making magnets, and it's it's about mm-hmm. those four. A little bit about samarium for samarium cobalt magnets, but it's really about the four for making these neodymium iron boron magnets. So. Again, neodymium, praseodymium, dysprosium, terbium. So most rare earth projects, 90, 95% of their economics are really about those four main magnet metals. Uh, Now, uh, all 15 have some kind of purpose Mm -hmm. of the the lanthanides as well as yttrium and scandium. So uh, now, what are they in terms of... uh, something you might've actually seen before. If you're, if you're not a chemist, I'll take you back to high school science class and you saw the periodic table on the wall, looks like a giant bat, you know, and you'd look at that and you'd look at the clock and go, wow, I hope this (laughs) class is over soon. Um, But down at the bottom, there were two orphan lines Mm
0: -hmm.
1: of the periodic table. The top line of those two lines are the lanthanides, the lanthanide series. And that's, the 15 core elements that are rare earths. So if you, you know, kind of the old question of in uh, the geopolitical landscape, but uh, you know, somebody, oh, they couldn't find, you know, uh, Bosnia on a map. Well, I'm now ne- here to help your, your listeners Yeah. You know, on the map of the periodic table. You can go to the rare earths, just look at the bat, the two lines underneath the bat, top line, lanthanides, those are the rare earths and you can win that bet at the bar next time.
0: <laughs> I want to know what kind of bars people are hanging out at that that's, <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, you know, I don't most, know
0: if I want to go to those bars or stay away from them, uh, but, the, yeah.
1: the bars on satellite beach near Cape Canaveral. <laughs> some, there's a few in Houston where Absolutely. folks talk about these things. Yeah. Um, well,
0: but I think yeah. What's really neat about what you pointed out, Marty, is that I think folks hear about rare earths a lot, but they miss the connection between rare earths and magnets. Right. And that's mm-hmm. where the true commercial opportunity yep. for sure. rare earth mining companies is. It's the real market driver as compared to what you and I were speaking about a little bit before we started recording. You've got some other kind of pulls, mm-hmm. especially from the government and the in the policy space in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But the market driver are these rare earth magnets and yep. the like, vast array of applications for them. Yep. Is that correct?
1: That's absolutely correct. So, you know, back to thinking about that that concept of turning electricity into motion mm-hmm. anything you want to move that that you're not moving with an internal combustion engine directly you know you have got an electric motor involved and you need a small form factor or you need high efficiency in you know mm-hmm. in the you know the smallest form factor fo- possible you need high performance magnets in a in a small confined space that can withstand extremes in temperature you know really mm-hmm. cold driving in Canada really hot, you know, driving in Arizona. But at the same time extremes in things like fighter jets, you know, submarines, you know, cruise missiles, you know, things that have little motors or big motors that are need to make motion, whether that's really small control uh motors that that move tiny things, small amounts or, you know, it's uh driving the propeller on a Virginia class submarine. All that requires varying size of Magnets and a, a critical piece here why this is defense industry sensitive is if we have to get the rare earths and the magnets from a potential other military superpower.
0: <laughs> just um, say it. China. Just saying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. How do you say China without saying China? Yeah. Um, and things get kinetic either directly or or in a proxy war, and you need all these magnets in order to build the things that go boom or the things that deliver the things that go boom, you know, that, that supply chain gets choked and people start getting really nervous. So they are integral to so many things. And, you know, uh, like I'll give you a tiny, tiny example, which is inside your phone. What makes your phone vibrate Mm or what makes your phone vibrate is a tiny rare earth permanent magnet motor, super tiny. Mm -hmm. It has an offset weight on it. So the motor spins, And it's out of the little weight on it's out of balance. So it makes your phone vibrate. Yeah. I
0: didn't know that.
1: Yeah. So now, Mm -hmm. one, there's choking things off, which is sensitive. The other thing, uh, that supply chain. The other thing is if you have to tell your potential enemy, I need a magnet that is shaped in this exact form factor, you've given them a critical piece of opportunity to re-engineer, reverse engineer some kind of sensitive technology. So yeah. that's a key piece for the defense industry supply chain is not having, you know, end use manufacturing of shiny object that goes in sensitive technology being done by a potential kinetic enemy.
0: Yeah, no. And I wonder, um, you know, I, I think that that's part of what really the the policy World in Washington D.C. has been tracking um, to some degree for a long time. Certainly, back when I was in Afghanistan, and we um, we did uh, exploration at a rare earth carbonatite deposit in Helmand, and thought about putting it out for tender with the then Afghan government, and pulled it back because the U.S. State Department thought China would win the bid, and you know there was there was great concern about that. So even back then, um, but it's become such a more prevalent topic. And I think I'm guessing it's partly because we're so much more reliant on the technology that comes from rare earths and rare earth magnets. And and China has cut off exports before. Right. I mean, this is not a like a paranoid kind of conspiracy theory level thing. China has drastically reduced or stopped export of rare earth material in the past. Mm-hmm. So this is a real yeah. real concern. Um,
1: yeah. Over over a really minor thing yeah. like you know you know the reason why why they were I can't cut remember off.
0: what i mean it was five or so in
1: 20 years, right? so in 2010 i i love telling the story and uh, so when people ask uh, like uh, our la paz deposit they'll ask what brought about discovery of the la paz deposit in arizona
0: mm-hmm.
1: and i love to i love to say the answer well, was actually a a drunk chinese fisherman <laughs> um, led us all the way there and the way this guy did it he's in it you know he's in between Japan and China, there's some disputed islands, mm-hmm. depending on which side of the strait you're on. They're the Senkaku Islands or the Dayu Islands, and he's fishing these disputed waters. The, the uh, Japanese Coast Guard comes to shoo him away. Uh, he and his crew and his boat, well, he was he was a little, little deep into the rice liquor. Mm-hmm. At that point in the day, he decides to ram his boat into two different Coast Guard vessels. Oh, man. They... Take him into custody. I'm not sure why they didn't take him into custody after the first one, <laughs> but but too much. After paperwork. you hit the second one, they just didn't want. To yeah, too, there you go. <laughs> too much paperwork. They, they, so they take him into custody. They they bring the vessel in. They bring the crew in. The crew and the vessel were released very quickly. Mm-hmm. The captain, due to his overwhelming belligerence, um, he got held for a few weeks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And as you can imagine, things got really tense between the Chinese and Japanese. And in the resulting political row that came in the wake of that, rare earths were cut off to Japan. Prices went to the moon. If you look at historical prices back 2010, 2011, there's this insane spike.
0: Because at the, the time, driven... Japan did the, the in-between processing stage. But yeah. At the time, Japan yeah. the raw material in Japan. Yep processed it and made it into components, if I remember correctly. Yeah,
1: yeah. especially, uh, you know, companies like Hitachi were the, mm-hmm. the magnet maker. They really owned and controlled the magnet making technologies uh, at that point uh, mm-hmm. of great substance. And, you know, were you know pretty accomplished refiners and, you know, being able to just make product. Yeah. Um, a lot of it then also was about, you know, in the petroleum industry, you know, if crude oil comes out of the ground, you, that has to be, refined so they use what's called cracking catalyst cracking catalyst is uh, cerium and lanthanum yeah. um while the two lowest value rare earths they are by far the highest market volume and they're dependent in order to make cracking catalyst in order to refine crude oil and mm-hmm. make gasoline kerosene all the all the eans uh and which You know, brings me to uh, a really famous but misunderstood quote from, uh, you know, former Chinese leader, Deng Xiaoping, who uh, in the early 90s said, uh, Saudi Arabia has oil, China has rare earths. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's often misunderstood to say that, you know, they, that at that time, he understood the new energy future. Mm -hmm. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, very smart, very forward looking, you know, opened up China, did a lot of amazing things. He didn't see where we are today. Mm -hmm. he did not uh what he saw was cerium and lanthanum in huge volumes that the that the saudis and the americans and the europeans needed in order to turn crude oil into gasoline Mm -hmm. and jet fuel and kerosene so that that was the connection Hmm. that he was really talking about as as long as we're living in a world that is oil energy dependent you're going to need cracking catalysts to turn it into something that actually makes things go. Now that has since evolved into this new energy, reduced carbon future of electrify everything, Yeah, you know, and if you want to turn electricity into motion or motion into electricity, you need those rare earth permanent magnets. So mm-hmm. it's all thanks to a, a drunk Chinese fisherman.
0: <laughs> well, and I, I mean, it's, it's amazing how connected the world is. Right. I mean, that yeah, it is, really I mean, of course we've been living as I joke in like, in the last few years have been uh, the type of years where I'm like, I'm sick of living through history, right? Next up is the Mm -hmm. zombie apocalypse because we've clearly gone through like everything else. Um, So, but it it is amazing how connected the world is and how an incident like that can set off a whole, whole industry. Um, And on that, you know, I wonder if you could explain to the listeners a little bit of why is there a big government push? I mean, you touched on, you know, it's, you know, the rare earths are critical for a variety of national defense applications, but why is the government having to get involved in the supply side, right? Which the US government doesn't typically really get involved in, mm-hmm. at least with mineral commodities.
1: Yeah. It, well, like with so many things, it has a lot of complex layers. Mm-hmm. There's emotions, there's egos, there's there's power, there's political sound bites that all have different values for different reasons. So a big reality of this is the government is involved because the defense industry has been talking about this supply chain risk relative to building its tools, its technologies for, you know, since before 2010 and that price spike. And it, and at that point, they were like, see, we told you. And, and folks started to wake up and you can go on all the way back to the Obama administration. You had, U.S. top leaders talking about the need to bring back and, and re-onshore this supply chain that we actually created. Mm-hmm. You know, we created it in, in the States in the 60s yeah. uh, with yeah. the mountain pass mine that's been being dug since the late 50s to produce rare earths that were initially used to, to make things for the space race.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, uh, Nixon created EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, in the 70s. It had to grow up to adolescent and get it, get its adult teeth. So in the early nineties, EPA got started getting really serious about things and industry started taking it serious and realizing these penalties are real. These costs are real. So in the early nineties with so many dirty industries as a part of cleaning up America, we just offshored the nastiest stuff Mm -hmm. and, and rare earths in its traditional processing is a pretty nasty business you know, train loads of sulfuric acid and kerosene. And then you end up with massive, you know, lakes full of this stuff uh, that have absolutely decimated massive areas of of mainland China. And that's pretty easy record to go find. So we we offshored it when it was this really small, not super important industry supply chain in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're in this, you know, we're in a whole different world where our defense industry is dependent upon these things. The new energy reduced carbon future is dependent on these things. And in a world of red and blue politically in in America, there's very little these folks can agree on. But when you say, when you talk about rare earths, you know, on one side of the aisle, we frame it as it gets framed as, you know, uh, we need to pull this back from communist China and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we need to not allow our defense industry supply chain to be uh, dependent upon them. On the other side of the political aisle, it's about renewable energy, you know, and it's, you know, electrification and mobility. And it's about wind energy and the need for that and, and having consistent supply and the jobs, especially union jobs. Mining are union jobs, big Mm -hmm. manufacturing for wind turbines and and most electric vehicles, you know, maybe not Teslas or Tesla isn't unionized, but everybody else that's going to make cars in America is unionized. That's union labor is going to go is going to build those. So there's a lot of reasons for the blue side of the political aisle to to embrace that as well. Mm -hmm. Now they want that done responsibly and appropriately and and you know so each side has their reasons but they can at least agree on the thing yeah we we need more rare earths and we need this we need to control the supply chain and we need to do it responsibly and safely
0: and and what we hear certainly is the focus on domestic supply but there's always that asterisk that you mentioned yeah. also says with allies and i think that's yeah. something else that's really important that other countries in particular australia and canada are are farther ahead than the us in mm-hmm. terms of building deposits and some of the technology what do, what do you see going on with that and and is that a is that a positive um for yeah the-
1: it so it is a positive so you know we've you know we're using as an example for some of our metallurgy mineral processing work nagrom labs in australia Mm-hmm. To help us, you know, figure out our processing path, our flow sheet for, you know, pro- our projects here in the U.S. because they have that expertise, right? Mm-hmm. We've used Saskatchewan Research Council in Saskatoon mm-hmm. for similar type work. You know, uh, another great resource in Canada is uh, SRC Labs, especially their Lakefield Lab. These are are non-American labs, but friendly. You know, really helpful allies that can help us figure out how to operationalize and, and stand up key parts of the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And they have that expertise because they've been working on projects in Canada and in Australia over yeah. the past decade. So, you know, those are absolutely imperative. And, and supply wise, there are only two producing rare earth mines of, of significant scale outside of mainland China. You've got some artisanal stuff happening in, in Myanmar and a, a little bit of government or military run stuff happening in, in Myanmar that goes straight up into China. But you know, you get much past that. And the and and I think there's one project just starting in Canada that's producing material that is ultimately headed to Estonia, I believe, for processing. But, you know, really significant scale processing. You've got two outside of China and the entire industry needs to double. So take, take Mm -hmm. everything in China and take what's outside of China. All that needs to double in this decade Mm -hmm. just to keep up with projected demand for electric vehicles. Yeah. One one use case. We need to double this industry just to keep up with one use case. That's mind blowing to me. The the demand that is accelerating and, and, uh, you know, as we've had time during the pandemic to look at data more and more closely and, you know, more more time on the desktop, yeah. um, you know, and you see these things like, you know, how uh, electric vehicles, it used to be everybody talked about what the growth of electric vehicles and wind power would be. Now we can look back and see a really steep curve of what already is. Mm. And, I mean, the we're well into a hockey stick for both of those big market pullers yeah in this space and that comes to uh i'll kind of point to the the risk of cutoff of of supply chain cutoff by the chinese so it's easy for the china hawks you know politically to rattle the saber and you know the sky is falling and uh the chinese are going to cut us off because they're mean they're just Mm -hmm. mean right you know and and they'll they'll say it in those kind of terms and you know and and really bash the chinese in that regard. And no doubt the chinese are are shrewd mm-hmm. geopolitical players. They cut it off over a drunk fisherman, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So yeah, they could they could cut it off for any number of reasons and there's plenty of veiled threats that have happened over the past decade from time to time. But th- in in my opinion that's not the most overwhelming risk. The real risk is the reality that the Chinese are making more electric cars than anybody. They're making more wind turbines than everybody. They're just going to eat all their own. Yeah. yeah. They are going to consume it all. So they're going to feed their own industry first. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of of us are going to be fighting over scraps. Mm -hmm. Then you go, Oh, wait wait a minute. We've, you know, there's a rare earth producing mine in California. There's a rare earth producing mine in, in uh, Australia, but their product goes to China for refining, metal making magnet making it's on it, once it's there it doesn't necessarily have to come back out the Chinese control it once it enters their supply chain so they could absolutely in the very near future get to the point that they are consuming everything they process and the rest of us are out here fighting for scraps to make cruise missiles or you know make a new you know I I'm, I'm a Ford truck guy I'm pretty excited mm-hmm. about that electric. Yeah. Ford Lightning. um, You know, so there's going to be a lot of those maybe sitting there waiting on a motor.
0: Yeah, no. And I I think that's where certainly from from what I see, there's and having worked for the federal government. Right. And having worked for Mm -hmm. the Pentagon and and still being a a little involved through think tanks and such. You know, I think people are starting to really understand the gap on the exploration and the supply side in the U.S., Mm -hmm haven't quite wrapped their minds around the next step in the process, right? The yeah. processing and the refinement and the production and that that stuff takes a lot of money, right? I mean, those yeah. are expensive plants to build and the U.S. government's got to get ready to help subsidize is the wrong word, right? But mm-hmm. help support the industry in order to compete with the way the Chinese government does yeah. um, help their industry. I don't know if you have any
1: perspective. Yeah, so... So the good thing is, is there's a lot of that already there Mm -hmm. and, and being deployed and more is coming. Mm -hmm. There's help. And that's something that for us as a company, we've really leaned into. So uh, like you said, there's more to it. There's, there's getting rocks out of the ground, making little rocks out of big rocks, Mm -hmm. you know, leach, precipitate, make a mixed rare earth concentrate. So yeah, that's a sellable product, but that's not a manufacturing product, right? right? We need, what i'll call the midstream Mm -hmm. which is separation purification and metal making those three things do not happen at industrial scale in the western hemisphere Mm
0: -hmm.
1: okay well you can't make an electric traction motor or a wind turbine until you get it out to metal and and on the magnet right so we've got an onshore not just mining operations but exactly what you said separation purification metal making and those are big operations unto themselves, but we've got to bring it all together. Now, there's some of those that are coming online by other players that mm-hmm. we believe by the time we get operational, we'd have opportunity to feed into. Okay. But we're also looking really hard at at going, you know, source to metal mm-hmm. ourselves and and you know, looking at the opportunity to potentially be a more complete supply chain and not just a mining operation. Uh, now the question becomes, well, h- how do you do that? The, the mm-hmm. technology for it, can you get it permitted? And who's going to drive the bus? You know, mm-hmm. who, the, the, the humans, who's going to operate that, who even knows how uh, we offshored this whole thing in the early nineties, the people who are running it in the, in the early nineties had started doing it in the sixties for the space race. They were old when it left. Now they're, <laughs> You know, so now they're, yeah. they're all dead. Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is simple math. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's nobody left that that knows how to do separation, purification, metal making at industrial scale and mm-hmm. certain. And if they do know if there's anybody still alive from it, that could actually remember the recipes, the way they do it is not a way that we, they would know to do it is not a way that would get permitted in the United States today. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah. right so so we need a new tech stack mm-hmm. new processing capabilities that are interlaced with a lot of traditional or, or more modern mineral processing metallurgy work something that can be permitted operationalized stood up in in the United States or you know a near partner Canada Mexico operationally mm-hmm. um, and then and the people to run it so we we get that bigger problem you know I, I think we understand the assignment here. Yeah. So to to use a a term my kids would use. And um, so to us, we're not just looking for rocks. We're looking for technology and people Mm. to to help us get maximum value out of those rocks. Now, where we're doing that is uh, a really key piece that we've leaned into is the Critical Materials Institute. It's a Department of Energy innovation hub that's a collaboration of five different U.S. national laboratories like Lawrence Livermore National Lab, Ames Lab, Idaho National Lab, Oak Ridge National Lab, about a dozen major research one universities that are all focused on figuring out the rare earth supply chain problem. So you've got different principal investigators, uh, uh, researchers that are focused on different pieces, so extraction, separation, purification, metal making, and as a part of CMI, we get to interact with all of them. We get to give them our our feedstock for them to work on that mm-hmm. and, and figure figure this out and bring that new tech stack into play. DOE money helps fund that. These same folks chase DOD money mm-hmm. from pl- places like DARPA, uh, you know, advanced research projects agency. DARPA's counterpart in the energy space under DOE is called ARPA E, same type mission you know, the really big moonshot type technology developments. And then you've got EERE for renewable energy. There's these huge funding mechanisms for research in this. Millions and millions of dollars available. So instead of us as a little junior miner trying to chase, you know, morsels of government money, you know, please, sir, may I have some more? You know, what we've chosen instead is to partner with these really smart people in Mm -hmm. the national labs and universities and say, We'll give you feedstock. We'll tell you what we know about the industry and the supply chain. We'll make our relationships available. Let's collaborate and pull this, you know, really cool new tech stack together. And it's paying some really great dividends for us. We're really excited about what we're seeing in that space. There are two resource companies that are team members in the Critical Materials Institute with all these folks, Mm -hmm. Rio Tinto and us. That's Mm -hmm. it.
0: Oh, wow. That's it. That's now it. Why is that? Is it that other companies have chosen not to participate, or what's the reason? You guys are just the awesomest. <laughs> I, I can't, I,
1: I can't <laughs> postulate on the ignorance of others. So, <laughs> you know, if you don't have enough sense to play ball yeah. with the smart people, I, I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't explain it away. F- I, I don't know. So, um, you know, no, we know.
0: Yeah, I, we we yeah. A lot of. I think kind of the way um, the way I see the industry is people want to own stuff end to end. Right. And, uh, and I hear a lot, Oh, because it's a rare earth asset and the geology and the metallurgy is so complex. We can only figure out how to process our deposit. It's got to be unique to our mind.
1: Um, Terminal uniqueness.
0: Yeah. You know, just <laughs> everyone is a special and unique snowflake. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. When it comes, but so, uh, and I, I think that historically that's, that's kind of the way the industry grew up. You had a lot of this kind of, you know, people didn't want to collaborate on infrastructure, right? Everyone wanted to own their own mill. And I wonder if maybe this will, this could, could break that model for, for a good reason. I mean, they are, it is expensive to to design and and build this stuff.
1: Yeah, it is expensive and the, and the mechanisms are there. So, Mm -hmm. you know, on the R&D front, DOE, DOD, huge buckets of money they're putting into this. And when there's a when you got a national lab involved as a partner, when you got major universities involved as as partners and there's transparency of funding and there's no they don't have yeah. to worry about, you know, some shady dude in the far off land absconding off with, you know, a few hundred thousand to buy his yacht. Yeah. You know, we that's no risk because of mm-hmm. the nature of the partnerships and the and the transparency required with the national labs and the universities. So, you know, they They know when they give the money into these projects, it's going to get deployed on moving the science forward Mm -hmm. and not just at bench scale, but pilots, demos and standing up projects. So there's right now, you know, 50 million dollars funding stand up demo plant available in the U.S. You you know, you just got to put forth a viable plan to stand the thing up. Uh, And they're willing to do that, not just for one, but for almost anybody willing. So, you know, different Uh entities, it's not. Okay, everybody compete for one fifty million. million. You know, no, yeah. there's there's hundreds of millions available. You know, you can apply for a grant uh, for assistance up to fifty million. Uh, another question I'll get when we start talking about these R and D partnerships is, well, well, how's your financing going to work? You know, if you're using any kind of new technology, you're going to go to the bank, and the bank's going to go, oh, if that's not proven for twenty years, commercial, we're not going to loan you any money. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not worried about that so uh, and the reason I'm not worried about that is because the mining piece uh, so Arizona, you know these are surface deposits, open cut
0: mm-hmm.
1: pretty traditional the front end is really traditional, simple, comparatively cheap mining which Arizona has a great workforce for and great capabilities for. so getting rocks out of the ground, making little rocks out of big rocks plenty of workforce and capability for that. that's easy yeah. building that, financing that that looks really simple and standard and straightforward right it's the midstream part where the new technologies really are going to come into play most heavily in that separation purification metal making but anywhere that new technology is in play the department of energy brings forward the loan programs office to act as the bank with even cheaper funds than the bank will give us Mm -hmm. so these type projects in in this space qualify for DOE loan program office money. Additionally, also this year, the Export-Import Bank of the United States has been authorized to be the bank and loan money Mm -hmm. on projects such as this. So, you know, there are big chunks of the traditional pieces of this. We could go to the bank for financing when we get ready for construction, but the stuff that is, uh, you know, a, a little more novel in nature, that's more, you know, not 20 years proven, DOE and XM Bank will stand in there and and give us money at a, an extremely competitive rate. So, mm-hmm. you know, a problem that's something that would have made this approach impossible ten years ago, but mm-hmm. makes it very viable today.
0: Well, that's great to hear. I mean that that is so encouraging, and and I just wonder if. Um... It seems like you all have kind of broken the code in industry and government talking the same language, perhaps, which I know has been an obstacle in the past, where, frankly, like there aren't a lot of mining people that go into the government space, right? And by- I'm Scared of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> other yeah, than like, the government like a- affairs person, right? They don't yeah. go the other way either. And so I know for me, historically, it's it's been a challenge sometimes talking to policymakers and, and government folks because- you really, there is a high amount of education that has to go on from both sides, right? How the government yep. works and how the mining industry works to find something that, that can work for both sides. And it sounds like uh, things are really moving in a positive direction. That's really encouraging.
1: Yeah, we're, we've got a lot of reason to be excited. I've been in different industries. You know, I've had two successful exits out of two different startup operations uh, over the years. I've never been in an industry that had both market pull and government push Mm -hmm. and that you could have a positive conversation on both sides of the political aisle. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is such a unicorn opportunity. And now, uh, you know, within that government push, we've got multiple national labs, all these universities, you know, just a a fantastic uh, sandbox of collaboration and tens of millions of dollars available to bring those these new technologies forward so that we can do it responsibly cleaner mm-hmm. greener you know more efficient i mean there's just so much to be excited about both both as a a, a capitalist miner and yeah. as a as a science nerd yeah i mean i i get I, I just get giddy about this stuff every day
0: awesome well and and also i you know a question i always love to ask people is on the investment side i mean you spoke a little bit about you know how this is a bit of a different approach from a finance perspective on the on the midstream. So for folks that are interested in investing in the technology side, I always recommend if you love electric vehicles, like invest in companies that are exploring for and mining the metal that goes into them. Same with wind turbines, mm-hmm. and solar panels, right? So if folks are yep. listening to this and thinking, "Wow, I want to get in on the ground floor," how do I how do I evaluate and invest in a rare earth? exploration or mining company? What are some things you would tell them to look for when they're doing that due diligence or, or research?
1: So some of it is just traditional mining assessment, right? And which at the beginning, it's always, you know, grade is king and, you know, size and grade. Rare Earths has a, a nuance to it that puts a wrinkle to the size and grade assessment. Um, so I would think in terms of not only look at size and grade, but also look in terms of Can you get it permitted? You know, because a really great deposit that you can't legally get out of the ground, it's just scenery. You know, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not going to happen. So can you get it permitted and can you get to it? So, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you you know, in Canada, you know, uh, all kinds of really great deposits that you can't get there from here. They are absolutely just locked because of lack of infrastructure. So, Mm -hmm. you know, understanding size understanding nuance of grade and not only of rare earths but of the the deleterious materials which thorium is the big problem in rare earths and then yeah and then accessibility in terms both of infrastructure and permitting and if i can i'll talk through just a little bit of those an example and kind of put some meat on the bone to, to with those analysis so as we've evaluated projects you know, in how we've looked to find the ones that we have and, and, are, and are kind of our two flagships in Arizona and Wyoming, both mining-friendly states, Arizona and Wyoming, really fantastic. Wyoming is really notable for oil, gas, and coal. So there's a mining workforce there. There's, you know, permitting is pretty straightforward. Same in Arizona, huge copper deposits, gold, you know, a lot of open open-cut surface mining, inexpensive, plenty of infrastructure, We've got roads that go you know road goes through right the middle of each of these projects you know electricity nearby uh you know gas supplies within reach rail within reach so accessibility infrastructure is there or close by at really an extraordinary level and then accessibility in terms of permits. so while these are mining friendly jurisdictions that's key and you would think okay mining friendly jurisdiction you can get a mine open but Rare earths have a a unique wrinkle in that. So we'll go back to that periodic table, the big bat on the wall. Top line is lanthanides down there at the bottom. The bottom line are the actinides that include uranium and thorium. You know, they're two lines down there together because these are, they're like the bad cousins that hang out next, always hang (laughs) out and party next door. So um, the uranium, while there's some market for that, the real problem for rare earths is thorium. And typically a rare earth deposit is robust with thorium. You end up producing all this uh, radioactive waste content and it has to go somewhere. Well, in the U.S. we used to stash things in Yucca Mountain, no more. So you're kind of limited to what can you stash on site and can you get that permitted? Well, that involves a Nuclear Regulatory Commission permit. NRC, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, has not issued a new permit for a new greenfield mine in decades. Hmm. Nobody there knows how to write one. They couldn't yeah. find the form if they had to. Um, Nobody would
0: be the first, probably, yeah, too. Yeah. I and
1: I mean, so think about it. in decades, they didn't get one written under the Trump administration. Yeah. It sure as heck isn't going to happen under the Biden administration. So even though a project might be in a friendly jurisdiction, can it? does it need an NRC permit? Could mm-hmm. it get one? I, I think NRC permits for greenfield mines have gone the way of the dodo bird. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it is, you know, that I don't see that happening for much anybody anytime soon, regardless of how much we want rare earths. So we've focused on projects that are, that are maybe lower in grade in rare earths, but they have negligible thorium content, near mm-hmm. negligible thorium content. So mm-hmm. low that, you know, if in processing we in concentration, if we keep the, the thorium content below 500 parts per million, we don't need that NRC permit. Okay. So we can we can play ball down here. And like in Arizona, we're starting at like six parts per million uranium and thorium combined. So we'd need almost 100x concentration of the thorium before we need an NRC permit. So that creates, we think, a an easier, a comparatively easier path to permitting reality versus other projects that will need an NRC permit that have higher thorium levels uh, mm-hmm. that are, you know, anywhere from thirty to two hundred times higher than what we have in Arizona, as an example. So that that's been our our thesis of work is to focus on projects where we have an opportunity to avoid that NRC permit requirement and thus have a smoother path to permitting and getting open so so that's that piece uh then so now that brings me to size and grade you'll find some rare earth deposits that are are veins so it's super concentrated but it'll be these little narrow veins that are measured in centimeters or maybe a few meters um Mm -hmm. and the grades will be really high which will get everybody really excited um but they're tiny they're just tiny or they're you know they're going to end up being an underground project or which is going to be really expensive or a lot of times with those the thorium content is super high so they're going to need Mm -hmm. that nrc permit uh most likely so you know we've seen those we've we've chosen not to push on those so grade might be high but it's small and it's it's problematic with thorium so those are are things to avoid and then we've focused on these projects that are lower grade but you know huge opportunity uh, mm-hmm. So, an example: our Arizona resource that that brought us to our initial project resource estimate right now is 170 million tons. So, just massive project scale. And then we've got an ex uh, about three kilometers to southwest. We think we may have found a bigger brother twin ore body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now, the exploration target on that is like 700 to over 900 million tons of potential size and mineralized ore in that ore body. So, and then uh, we've got this project in Wyoming, also really low in thorium, also massive. It's a huge geologic pluton that, you know, clocks about four plus kilometers north to south and a couple kilometers wide. I mean, you know, we're, we're not talking centimeters and meters, we're talking kilometers. And we just did our maiden drilling on that in the spring and, and those results will come out soon. So those are, we're getting excited about low thorium, huge in size, opportunity to get permitted, great infrastructure, those kind of things. So those those are what we see as the keys to evaluating projects and how we've evaluated our prospecting activities.
0: And if those projects were to come into production, maybe even just the the ones that you kind of know with a higher level of certainty, what would that represent in terms of that demand where you were saying we've got to double you know, the world's current production, what kind of market share could that possibly represent?
1: Um, it'll be uh, comparatively small for the global need. Uh, oh, okay. you know, yeah. Given, you know, given the global demand over the coming decade for all use cases as projected by the big consumers, you know, these, these projects will be really small percentages of global need.
0: Well, that I've I've certainly learned a lot, Marty. Thank you so much. Uh, that was that was really fascinating, and um, I guess I'll end with the question I've been asking everybody lately on this series, which is, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the mining industry uh, tomorrow, what would you change and why?
1: Yeah. So this is an inter- industry that is way behind on understanding things like environmental justice social justice Mm -hmm. diversity equity inclusion you know they'll they'll poo poo it and and say things like rainbow washing and pink washing and green washing and you know it's like stop washing and just just do you know do do the right things do the right things um you know we're we're trying to do that Uh, you know a key part of that for us is a really important voice on our board of directors is uh, uh melissa sanderson did 20 years with the State Department did uh, 14 years of Freeport-McMoran. You know, we have a good measure of uh, diversity on our board of directors. It's not the typical bunch of old, fat, white guys that this industry tends to to parade around. And then it also ha- is at the front line. You know, our, uh, our small but very mighty geology team is uh, right now, headcount-wise, is 60% female. Mm-hmm. and you know we're we're really proud of that and you know not just because we're checking some magical pink box but because these are really talented smart women that are helping us understand what we have and what we need to do on a level mm-hmm. we didn't we you know we didn't have concept of before they joined our team so you know these are you know it it pays dividends and the industry needs to learn that there is value creation and not just being diverse, but being inclusive uh, mm-hmm. in who's there, and and not just internally, but also externally. And as you're out there seeking stakeholder voices, stakeholder input in the community, make sure you're not just talking to people that look like yourself. Um, yeah, you know, get a, get a broader representative of who you're talking to, who you're hearing from, who you're putting value in their voice and their and what their needs are
0: no i i 100 I sign on with that i think uh certainly with my team at prospector i would say our team has to reflect the future if we want to build products that people yeah. need to build your yeah. future right i mean that's the reality yeah. is if, if you're not pulling ideas and feedback and thoughts from folks that are truly representative of the community you serve which for us we see as the global mining industry then you're going to be off, right? I mean, purely yeah. from a capitalistic perspective, it's also the right yeah. thing to do, right? But it's, you know, it, it does, it helps you come up with ideas and and see risks where a, a less diverse team would not foresee those or, or understand what's going on. So kudos to you all for that. And can't wait to follow the project and hear how things progress with you and your team. Um, and look forward to having you back on the rock sometime soon.
1: Awesome, would love to. Thanks, Emily.
0: All right. Cheers.
1: Cheers.